how's it going champagne sharks this is trevor you can find me on twitter at ricky rawls that's r-i-c-k-y-r-a-w-l-s or you can find the show at champagne sharks one word you can email us at champagne sharks at gmail.com and most importantly you can become a patron of the show for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and when you do that you get access to not only double the new episodes that come out but you also get access to at this point over 100 back episodes you get access to the voice and chat server where you can talk to other patrons about uh the show and different topics it's a pretty cool place we talk about all of all types of stuff and share links about things related to the show and we also have a feature where you can get previews of guests who are coming up and suggest questions that you want to ask them so it's a lot of cool stuff you can do and also you can email the show if i said this again before i'm sorry but at champagne sharks at gmail.com that's our email address i haven't mentioned it in a while but if you have any feedback or topic requests champagne sharks at gmail.com and with that being done we have kenny hey what's up guys how you guys doing that's pretty short and direct oh well. okay <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 so um of course you guys know me kenny um you can find me on twitter at 503-305-PODCAST. That's another podcast that I'm doing. Um, you can email my podcast at 503-305-PODCAST at gmail.com. And uh, yeah. Okay. And we have with us um, a guest co-host today, Andre Domis. You can find me on Twitter at Andre Domis. Um, also write articles for McLean's, The Globe and Mail, occasionally The Washington Post, and other outlets. And we have with us a pretty special guest today. And... I uh, came across this guest through uh, the Michael Brooks show because uh, he's appeared several times. And I told Michael, I was like, wow, that guest is really sharp. I really uh, learned a lot. It was very informative. Great breadth and uh, depth of information. Uh, Bill Fletcher Jr., if you can just introduce yourself and give a quick uh, description of uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to be on the show. And I'm the executive editor of something called GlobalAfricanWorker.com which is a new web magazine that started in August. Um, former president of Trans-Africa Forum. Uh, I do a lot of writing and have been active for most of my adult life in the labor movement. Um, but I started as an activist when I was in high school, in 15. I don't want to put uh, any words in anybody's mouths or give any descriptions of people that are inaccurate. So... Guys, if I get anything wrong about your stance, uh, just feel free to correct. But uh, I would say it's safe to say that uh, Kenny is co-host who probably has the least familiarity with uh, socialism mm -hmm. and probably has some kind of degree of skepticism toward um, <laughs> socialism, at least at least a lot of uh, stances that uh, a lot of white socialists. Uh, the, the, the current climate of socialism as compared to socialism in the 70s, 60s and 70s, yeah. Definitely skepticism. Okay, and um, Andre is probably the most versed with uh, socialism out of the three of us. I think I probably fall somewhere in the middle as far as um, familiarity and skepticism. But uh, Andre is, and again, if I get it wrong, uh, please sorry me, but you're very uh, well-rooted, though, in the uh, tradition of like black Marxism and uh, types of socialism that were kind of uh, crafted by and for black people, like, like mixing... Uh, Marxist tenants with a rooting in black issues. Would you say that's 
Sort of, kind of. Like, I don't know that okay. I would call myself. Uh, I'm familiar with like, <clears throat> like uh, black and and African critiques of Marxism. But I was lucky enough when I was young. My mother sent me to a uh, tutoring program in Toronto called Higher Marks. Uh, if there's any like Torontonians that are listening to the podcast, they probably know, and they're from like my generation. Everybody knows about Higher Marks. Wait, wait, even, wait, wait, wait. Is it Marks spelled M A R K X? M A R K S. M A R K S, like as in like higher, uh, like grades for school. Oh, oh, not yeah. M A R X. No, 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 it's no, not no, a no. pun. Okay, I thought no. it was, I thought it was a socialist pun. Okay, <laughs> no, no, but uh, the, and the headmaster of the program, he was a uh, he was a black Jamaican. Uh, his, his name was Mr. Blake, and he, um, even though he was a black conservative, like I don't know that I would even remotely call him a socialist. Um, he made sure that we read and understood like black luminaries that came before us. So he had us, you know, reading uh, Marcus Garvey, like transcripts of Marcus Garvey speeches. Um, he had us reading like even even like uh, uh, like uh, Norman Manley uh, had us reading, but he also had us reading Kwame Nkrumah early on. Right. So I read um, uh, Krumah's like essays on colonialism back when I was like 10 years old. Right. Okay. So and I'm, I'm still learning myself. Like I, I'm not uh, like I would not call myself an expert, but I'm well versed in this stuff because it's just been around since I was a little kid. Got you. Got you. Well, uh, one of the things that happens with the show, Bill, is a lot of times, uh, particularly when um, Andre is not around. The topic of socialism comes up and then we get a bunch of angry emails saying that we butchered everything, that <laughs> we have no idea what we're talking about. We get all these different things about, no, actually, socialism is this, socialism is that, or mm -hmm. the whole class versus race thing comes up. And then mm -hmm. I, I figured we should actually have somebody has had, who's not just knows about socialism as far as does a lot of reading, because there's a bunch of people who've done like theory or mm -hmm. who've like got into it like two or three years ago but I've read everything, you know, like someone who's actually had real like skin in the game, like history, who's like seen these conflicts before. I mean, cause for example, I only read Invisible Man for the first time recently. And I was surprised that a lot of the same questions we talk about, you know, about whether the answer is socialism or not for the black man or whether the white socialist is uh, in earnest trying to help the black man. Like was even discussed by uh, Ellison in that book. Like it's none of this stuff is new, which uh, surprised me. So I thought it would be interesting to have you come on and talk about that, but not only talk about that, but talk about labor today as well. Like I would like to bring it forward to today as well. And also like what you see for the future as far as um, anti-racism, leftism, the labor movement, mm -hmm. the role of black workers in the labor movement. So yeah, that's kind of an overview of why I was hoping to have you on today. Excellent. Um, well, see, I came to socialism through Malcolm X. And, and so it's important to understand that in the, in the 1960s, um, what was increasingly happening was among an important segment of the Black Freedom Movement, was trying to understand what was at the root of racist oppression in the United States. You know, was this a genetic thing or was this a systemic thing? Uh, and when I, uh, when I was um, 13, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. It changed my life. I mean, it just simply did. By the end of the book, I decided that I needed to be right in the smack in the middle of the Black Freedom Movement. And I liked, I was, I was attracted to the evolution of Malcolm's thinking in that he came to conclude that racism could not be separated from capitalism. 
and that there was something fundamentally wrong with the system itself. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, so it gets us away from the Yaqub theory that the Nation of Islam had been promoting and, and other kind of stuff. Around the same time, shortly thereafter, I heard about this political organization in California called the Black Panther Party. And the more I read about the Panthers, the more I felt that they had inherited the torch of Malcolm and deepened, deepened the analysis that they were critiquing capitalism, but saying that there must be an alternative. And, and the way that they defined the alternative was a socialism. And, and um, over time, you know, my, my views developed. I read a lot more. I was directly involved as, as a leftist. But I was pushed or put on this path by watching the trajectory of Malcolm and his critique of the U.S. system and of capitalism. Now, I think that, that I want to start there because I would argue that capitalism is fundamentally toxic, that it's not about who the capitalists are. It's not about whether there could be a better, more humane capitalism if there was some black person. Capitalism has proven to be uh, the first amoral economic system on this planet. Now, one can argue whether it's immoral, but but it's definitely amoral, has no morality. And, and the nature of capitalism drives it to expansion. It drives it to churning up resources, crushing people. There, there is no humane capitalism. Uh, there is, it's sort of like um, if you have a tiger and you release a tiger in a neighborhood, that tiger is going to kill somebody. Now, the tiger in a cage is something that you can look at, right? You can admire, you can ridicule, but it's in the cage. But when that tiger is out of the cage, you better be in a cage, right? Because otherwise your rear end is gonna be in major trouble. And that's the nature of capitalism. And, and, and as I've watched uh, over the years, I see nothing at all that contradicts that analysis, nothing. And particularly right now, when you look in the middle of this environmental crisis, and these capitalists cannot figure out a way out of it. They have no way out of it. We are heading towards systemic collapse. And, and basically, they're saying they want to just keep making money. That's what I mean about the amorality. It's like they can't, it, what do they say in psychology? It's an irresistible impulse. They can't help themselves. So the question then became, well, if I was in opposition to capitalism, where did, where did that put me? And so I started reading about socialism, first through the Panther Party, then reading about China with Mao Zedong and looking at other experiments. And I made the mistake a lot of younger leftists make of romanticizing various situations, not looking at the difficulties that have emerged at different points. But that then raises this question that you posed, what is socialism? You know, the, the, the answer to that depends to some extent on who's answering that. In other words, socialism as a concept starts to be elaborated in the late 1700s, early 1800s by people that are largely in Europe that are critiquing the, the nature of a capitalist economy. The most developed articulation of it comes with Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and their followers. And, um, and the, notion, the notion of socialism is 
uh, it comes down to basically a variation on the following, that the means of production, distribution, and exchange need to be controlled by working people, fundamentally. That the people that produce the wealth, I don't mean the people that are at top of the wealth pyramid, but the people that actually produce things need to be the guiding force in society. And that uh, as a result, the society must be democratized. Um, The notion of consistent democracy, uh, not just formal democracy, not just the idea that people have a right to vote, but that you actually, as a population, can make decisions over your lives. And ultimately, for Marx and Engels, the idea was to eliminate capitalism as a system and to move us towards a classless society where there is no oppression and there's nothing based on who has the most wealth. Now, you were saying before about um, white folks. I'm going to hold on the question of white folks for a second and say that socialist theory has been elaborated internationally by people representing every color of the rainbow. So it's not what we used to call in the 60s the white boy ideology um, any more than physics is a white boy ideology. Um, I agree with you there, but I did want to say one thing. Go for is it. that I think, and Andre, you can tell you what you think about this as far as your experience with you know talking to people. I agree with what you said about every color under the sun, every country has had their socialist thinkers. But I think what happens is there's a certain type of white socialist today who thinks black and brown and yellow people haven't worked out socialism for themselves, for their own situation. So then they end up in this place where they kind of lecture black Americans using okay. only only the white uh, oh. socialists that, they, that they've read. Yeah. And I know Andre has had this frustration where, you know, you've had to tell white socialists, like, no, there are plenty of black socialists, both in this country and outside this country, who have worked out Marx for themselves and figured out where and how Marx applies to their situation. Like, we don't need you, you know, the two or three white socialists you read, the people to kind of lecture. Uh, Andre, you That's can call radish speak. socialism. Oh, it's, even, it's even more than that. It's that... Uh... Okay, if you read, for example, Julius Nyerere, who also, like, uh, people might know him by uh, the name Mwalimu, he articulated a vision of African socialism in a book called Ujamaa, but he didn't articulate it through the lens of Marx. He basically explained, we didn't need Marx to know the social arrangement, because we understand collectivism inherently. It's, It's not something that we had to develop as a philosophy, it is something that is inherent to our way of thinking. So we, we don't need you to explain to us how to do collectivism or communitarianism or however you want to explain it. And I, I have to, con- like, every time I log on to Twitter, which I should probably stop doing because it's incredibly frustrating, I'll see some white jackass explaining, for example, to indigenous people in like Canada or the USA or wherever, you know, their goal is decolonization. That is, indigenous peoples have a particular policy and philosophical goal of decolonization, which means giving the land back. It's not some sort of like airy-fairy nonsense. It means the land did not belong to you. When we sign treaties, this is not the treaty that we signed. This is not what we agreed to. Give the land back. And then some white Marxist will say, oh, but then that'll just make you a capitalist. I mean, if you're into property ownership and all that, then why should we give the land back to you? Because you're just going to replicate capitalism. It's like, no, shut the fuck. You don't even understand what the relationship is to land. Like, you don't understand the concept of usufruct. You don't understand the earth and all of its bounties 
as kin, not as something that you own because there's no ownership. You can't own something that is alive and that is your kin. And having to explain this stuff to people is like intensely frustrating because they act like they've invented every branch of philosophy known to exist. And we're just like baby chicks waiting to be like fed their vomit. So the thing is that, so two points. One is that there are different currents within socialism. There is no one socialist theory. Nereri had a particular theory, some of which I agree with, some of which I didn't. I was much more influenced by someone he was um, in struggle with, a guy named Babu, who you might want to look up at some point, a fascinating character who led the revolution in Zanzibar in 64. Um, but the problem, I hear what you're saying. What you're describing is what we used to call radish socialism. Red on the outside, white on the inside. And the, um, the, what, you, what one has to keep in mind is that because of the system of white supremacy and the existence of racism, there is no political current that has not been touched by that. None. And imperial thinking, racist thinking, has gotten into every political tendency, religious tendencies too. So <clears throat> the question then is, you have to identify what is, the char- what is characteristic of the ideology and what is characteristic of some of the practitioners. So when you see someone advancing the kind of chauvinism that you were describing towards the indigenous, it's important to take them on regardless of what flag they're flying. The critical thing is for people to understand the basics of the theory so that we don't become confused about that. There can be various people that, I mean, for example, in the history of socialism, there was Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union uh, from the uh, late 1920s until 1953. He carried out many crimes. Uh, And so there are those that basically came to the conclusion that because of the existence of Stalin, and the clique that was around him, that that meant that socialism was a failure. And I would say that that is too simplistic an analysis in order to write off an entire theory, that we're dealing with human beings with all of the fallibilities that we have. And you have to always look at a situation to determine, is the problem basically the theory, as it is with science? Is the problem with the theory or is the problem with those that are practicing it or some of those that are practicing it? And that's what I would say that's critical to keep in mind. Because, look, I mean, I've run into the same kind of white socialists that you're talking about, or white anarchists, or white any number of other things. And one of the things about white supremacy and imperial consciousness is that it leads them to think that there's a short distance between God's mouth and their ear. That's the nature of the system we live under. That's the poison that's out there. Now, um... One thing I find interesting about what you said about the basic definition, uh, something happened to me in, I was in this uh, room with some socialist friends who have known each other for a long time and considered themselves uh, comrades and stuff. And one of them said, yeah, you know, one of the things that a problem is that we have to explain socialism to the masses in a very easily grasped way. And if you do that, Everyone would vote for Bernie Sanders, and people have to understand that socialism is like, you know, no one's going to burst into your house and just take everything you have. That's right. It's, it's like it, everyone uh, can make what they want, but you have to pay your fair share. 
And then his friend was like, that's what socialism is to you. I actually do want to go into everybody's house and take what they have. And then this is having this argument. Someone's like, no, it's not about just everyone makes as much money as they want. I want to seize the means of production. And then what was interesting was these people have been friends for years, have been theorizing for years, and they didn't realize till that moment all three of them had a different uh, definition, <laughs> operating definition of what socialism. Like you had a Stalinist and a Trotskyite arguing with each other. You know, maybe it's what, yeah, maybe it's what it was. <laughs> yeah, but, but basically, <laughs> one friend was like they, trying to liquidate the kulaks, and the other one was like, no, 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 no. We have to actually like get along somehow. But it's not different than than you would have if you had a group of Christians together. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, that's the thing. You know, you you'll have different interpretations uh, that exist about the theory, and these interpretations are always in struggle with one another. And by in struggle, I don't mean that they're necessarily fighting one another, but they're in contention. There are these different views about how to understand what's going on in the outside world. Um, I'll give you an example. There is a very important debate that has been going on about the restructuring of global capitalism. And the debate revolves to a great extent as to whether over the last 40 years, there's been the development of what's called a transnational capitalist class. In other words, whether or not there's developed a capitalist class that is composed of people from a lot of different countries that are like leading these multinational corporations, et cetera, and have started to see in each other a certain kind of commonality and where their countries of origin mean much less to them, their relationship with other capitalists and with the money that they're making. And that view exists in contention with those that say that, no, this hasn't happened, that the fight remains mainly between nation states. Now, this may sound like an academic debate, but it's far from it because it has all kinds of strategic implications. It has a lot to do with what kind of unity that we at the bottom are trying to build across borders. It has to do with what kind of struggles to build, what kind of organizational forms to, uh, to engage in. So you're going to have these different kinds of currents. People aren't always going to agree. And oh, oh, it's just oh. more a question of how they handle those disagreements. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't trying to say that this was uh, something unique to socialism or label it as a critique of them. But I was just trying to point out that sometimes uh, people, like people who are outside of socialism think, oh, I can't get this but even within it i've seen firsthand that not everyone always um agrees and these conversations are part of the um growth like i think a lot of people get attracted to it the fact that it's anti-capitalism but Mm -hmm. sometimes people are so focused on what they're anti that they don't take the time to form a positive um vision of of what they want to replace the capitalism capitalism with so i um, agree yeah i think that's something that um I think is very helpful to kind of hear you talk about, about what, like, it's wanting to be anti-capitalism, but at least for you personally, what is that uh, positive vision that you want to see capitalism replaced uh, with? Like what socialism means to you? Before I talk about the positive vision, let me just say one other piece, which I think is important for your listeners to keep in mind, which is that ever since the formation of this country, the efforts of people at the bottom whether they were slaves, um, whether they were indentured servants, whether they were Mexicans who were annexed, or whether they were 
uh, Asians brought over here, whether they were the First Nations, that those efforts had been actively suppressed and repressed by the forces at the top. So, I mean, that's no, no surprise. But particularly in the, in the 19th century, when the idea of socialism began to spread, those at the top were very, very fearful of this and began various forms of repression. And the United States has such an, has a very intense climate of repression against left-wing movements, <clears throat> left-wing theories. So much so that in the aftermath of World War II, contrary to the expectations of probably millions of people, the U.S. and Britain started the Cold War, and part of starting the Cold War was aimed at repressing left-wing movements within their respective countries and within the colonies that the Europeans had overseas. Um, the repression was very, very serious, and uh, it, it made um, many people fearful of having the kind of discussion we're having right now. Uh, it made people fearful of going to concerts of the renowned Paul Robeson. It made people fearful of uh, employing people like W.E.B. Du Bois. And so you had this climate. And, and so part of people not quite understanding socialism is directly related to the kind of repression that we've experienced at different points, so that it feels like almost every generation, we have to renew people's knowledge and information about this. Now, to your question directly, so my vision is uh, a few things. One is that we, uh, that we move from an anarchic economy to one that is planned, where uh, there are decisions about the kinds of investments that need to be made, the kinds of things that need to be created, the way that we use natural resources, that that's all part of a broader democratic plan discussion, as opposed to what we have right now with the rich ripping off the earth and, and destroying the climate. Um, socialism is about changing the way that we learn so that we actually are looking at real history. We're, in, we're um, investing in the, in the future with the students, uh, that we, we break away from the way that uh, education is financed. Um, Socialism is about uh, taking on all forms of oppression and recognizing that it's going to take a long time to end them. You know, when you think about the formation of capitalism, it took capitalism about 500 years to get to where we are now. And if you look at the history of the last 500 years, you see the fits and starts of capitalism. There were efforts in some of the city states of Italy and the Netherlands towards capital, and they failed. You, you saw what Britain went through in terms of developing it as a system, and you saw what they did in order to build it, and the fits and the starts and this and that. It's not going to be easy at all to make this turn. Uh, I mean, for example, there are certain things that we're going to have to recognize, like there's a lot that is produced in the society that we simply don't need. And and we have to break from this idea that we should have an economy that is producing things simply in order to sell so that somebody can become rich. I mean, you just think about the impact that plastics 
have had on the world environment. Think about that island of plastic that's floating out there. I mean, talking literally in the Pacific, made up of all this junk that the capitalists don't know what to do with, don't know how to get rid of it. Um, it, So a planned economy is basically saying, well, like, what do we need? An economy should serve the people, not the other way around. But we've been brought up in a system where we serve the economy. So that's, those are elements of the vision that I have. So I have a question. Uh, Please. So... As a, as a black person, as a black man, or, you know, just as, as a black person, period, in this country, in this day and age, as black people in the 1960s or 1950s, socialism would have worked for them. But at this point in time in this country and around the globe, black people are still on the bottom of this, the uh, financial uh, totem pole. So how does mm-hmm. this benefit? So, so this is what it sounds like to me. What it sounds like to me is the type of socialism that people want. It almost reminds me of like how um once you've been winning the game for a long time and people start gaining on your heels now you want to change the game and say okay now let's all just be the same so but i don't believe that that's going to work because we're talking about a people for the last 469 years or however many years it's been since black people got here in 1619 have had literally nothing so how do you convince black people that hey no it's not about having anything now it's about being on a level evil even playing field now we're going we're gonna to change the game to where you can't, the race that you've been trying to run since 1865, that you cannot, you're, we're not running that race anymore. Because the race has been rigged. Okay. So what I'm saying. Right. So that's what we yeah, got to. Yeah, I understand. Right? I understand that part. What I'm saying is that because black people have made all these leaps and bounds through all these years, whether it be um, educational advancement, whether it be uh, business growth, all these different things that black people have been trying to, struggling to do and have gained a little bit of a, a, a footprint. How do you tell Joe, the, you know, the black guy who's the plumber and has a plumber's business that, no, you're not going to be here creating wealth for your family to pass down to your family and their family. Now we're going to change the game. Well, there's different ways that I would, I would uh, respond to that. The first way is I would ask whether they like breathing air and drinking fresh water. Now, if the answer is no, then obviously the discussion is over. But if the answer is yes, then I would ask them, what about the current economic system leads you to believe that humans will be able to make it out of the 21st century? Pure and simple. And when they come to the conclusion that there's a very good chance that humans will not make it out of the 21st century, precisely because of the way that this economy functions, then you have a basis for uh, a discussion. So that's one response that I would give. The second is that um, this system is rigged against us and it's rigged against most people at the bottom, but it's definitely rigged against us. And that every time we get close, when we play the game, the way we're told that we should play the game, the rules are changed. And you look at that throughout history. our history here in North America. You look at uh, when we've done well in business, like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the black community was bombed from the air, right? Um, You look at what happened after World War II with the GI Bill uh, and who was able to get it and who was not and what happened to those who were able to get it compared to those who didn't. Uh, You look at what happened after slavery 
when you know uh, people of African descent emerged in many cases having uh, major skills in the building and construction trades and in running railroads. And we were driven out. The game is rigged against us. The system is toxic. It is not allowing for us. And, on, and, and we can see now with given who is in the White House and the social movement that backs him, that is in fact looking for a return to the 1950s, they really want to make sure <clears throat> to reinforce the rigging of the system. The reason why I asked that question is because I, I know you said that um, you would ask them if they'd like breathing clean air and yeah. drinking clean water, right? Mm-hmm. There is not an African-American community in this country that doesn't have a freeway running through it. Mm-hmm. So the air is already bad. If you live in Flint, Michigan, the water is already bad. That's so the, right. the, the, the idea of survival looks different for a black person growing up in the inner city, whether you're from East Oakland, um, Watts, East New York, Miami. I was in Miami and I went to Overtown. There's a freeway running right through Overtown and they're, and they're gentrifying it. You know, right. so the, the idea of survival looks a little bit different. So the whole idea of I just want to get out of here. I don't have time to deal with the political side. Do you mind if I step in on this one? Go ahead. Yeah. So one of the ways that uh, I find that people kind of, I don't want to say make a mistake, but misconceptualize what that would look like. Like if, if the system were to change is that it's a, a hierarchical, hierarchical top-down approach. Okay, everyone, we're not doing capitalism anymore. We're doing socialism. Here's how you're going to be organized. The, I guess like the uh, way to look at it is the bottom-up up method of organizing, you can see it in, for example, labor unions. Mm-hmm. Now, there are still inequalities inside of labor unions. I'm not saying that, uh, that they're, they're utopian either. But you can see the difference in material advantage being unionized. That is, you are uh, engaged in a type of class solidarity with your peers, coworkers, etc. And there is a very clear delineation between classes. So there's the workers and then there's the bosses, right? There's the people who are on the line and then there's people who are management. Very, very clear delineation. You're not going to cross from one side over to the other. Black people are overrepresented in labor unions. So even though they're about, um, what is it, about 8, eight 10% of the population in the United States, they're over- we, we are about 15%, I think. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. Um, but they're over-indexed. Sorry, That's I was, right. I, was, I, was uh, I was getting that mixed up with uh, the Toronto uh, population for black people. But, um, but they're over-indexed inside of labor unions. That's correct. Not only are they over-indexed, but <clears throat> they get paid higher. Their jobs are more stable. Um, yeah. They have- uh, they have health insurance to a greater extent. They have better health insurance. And that's because they're able to work alongside their peers and make demands and get concessions from management. What capitalism does is atomize people so that you are basically on your own. You're on your own little hustle by yourself. Maybe you will get some friends to work with you on your hustle, but you're alienated and you're atomized from the broader community. Mm-hmm. So to switch from one system to the other doesn't just mean a simple change of social arrangement. What it means is inverting the power structure so that leadership happens through uh, a stepping forward of what's called the proletariat class or the common worker, rather than there being, say, a, a boss in the workplace, rather than there being some sort of technocrat that you've elected to office because they have an Ivy League education. The leadership comes from the ground up. And so a much- socialist political movement, I just want to finish this one part, a socialist right, right. political movement is one where a movement exists, like a, a broad coalition and a movement exists that has demands 
uh, that does have uh, political will that say can donate to a candidate that can form a voting block, etc. But the candidate that gets chosen, who they are, whether they're you know if you want to call them quote unquote electable, uh, their educational credentials and all that stuff doesn't matter as much as whether they represent what it is the movement wants. Can they achieve what it is the movement is setting out to accomplish? Um, I think there's a bit of an unhealthy cult of personality that's developing around Bernie Sanders because I think some of these quote-unquote socialists don't really understand how the movement is made. And I think that's also what happened with Jeremy Corbyn over in the UK. But I think a really good example of this would be Evo Morales, the uh, the president of Brasilia, uh, Bolivia. Bolivia. Bolivia, uh, who was, sorry, I just, again, I got two words mixed up at the same time. Um, President of Bolivia, who was deposed in a coup d'etat. Now, um, Evo Morales was a campesino. He was a cocoa farmer, right? Just a a regular dude as a cocoa farmer, but he he did work organizing. That's how he got his start. When he found himself um, as president of Bolivia, he took, he boosted their literacy rates. He boosted labor participation, especially for indigenous communities. Uh, he did so much for that. He nationalized industries. Uh, he lifted the country out of poverty. He got them from underneath the yoke of the IMF. But that wasn't through like the sheer force of his personality or his electability or whatever you want to call it. He was implementing the, uh, the policy demands that the people within his movement wanted. Couldn't put it better. But I want to go back to this. this I mean, I think really very, I agree with you 100%. But I want to go back to this thing about uh, what to do with the person that is just looking out for number one. And I hear what you're raising. The thing, the point is that for someone, there's an ideological struggle that takes place constantly. And it's basically about whether or not I do on my own or whether I do with others. And when I'm saying to someone... I mean, I hear your point about the conditions that we're in. We, right, I get that. But I'm saying that an individual that basically thinks that the solution to their situation by themselves, well, it might be. I mean, they may be lucky. They may hit the number and they may be able to move to Monaco. But the chances are that's not going to happen. The chances are they're going to be, they will remain stuck in their communities or some similar communities. And therefore, we've got to be talking as activists about what can we do together. The idea of collective action, collective struggle, that's central to what socialists think. The, the reason um, why I'm I asking say, this question, oh, oh, go ahead, go uh, ahead, go ahead, I want to say that real quick, but this is um, actually related to Ken's question. But Ken, if I'm getting this wrong, let me know. But I think I think I kind of identify with something in Ken's question because it reminds me of a similar debate I was kind of having with a uh, white Brooklyn, uh, you know, middle-class socialist, right? But he was talking about India's and these um, corporations are going to India and, you know, building factories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about them in this way that was kind of pie in the sky, like the Indian people have to be taught about, you know, uh, climate change and climate change is going to eradicate them and all this stuff. And I was trying to tell him because uh, my family is from um, the third world. My family is from Haiti. My family uh, grew up like in uh, real poverty. And I was like, poor people. He kept trying to tell me, oh, climate change is going to affect them the worst. So they're going to care about it the most. And I'm like, it doesn't work that way because I'm from. Um, my people are from that where when you can't feed yourself or anybody, 
the last thing you're thinking of is what's going to happen to the planet 20 years from now. You're trying to just get out of uh, the bottom. And he just couldn't understand what I was saying, but he started getting mad. He was like, you know, he kept giving me all these stats about how it's how climate change is affecting them the worst. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you're not getting my point. Right. The regular right. run of the mill guy who's, you know, like, like if you told my father when he was in poverty, he goes, hey, you know, you've got to stop trying to grind to eat right now because, you know, the plan is going to happen. It's going to go up like five degrees. He's going to be like, well, it's already hot. I don't care. I want to eat. I, you know, this is Haiti. I don't, what does that have to do with what I'm doing now? And I think, Ken, if I was off, just let me know. But no, 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 no. What, that's 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 absolutely the point that I was trying to make. And the, yeah, yeah, because I th I think what I think what a lot of I think for a lot of people they spend all their time trying to learn one system. And I think to a lot of people on the ground, they kind of see it as in you're changing the rules on me, and it's you're changing it in a way that you're going to be in charge of it. Like, thank who's you. Gonna that, be... That's my point. That's so. I, and I don't want to cut you, you off, but this is this is okay. my this is the ultimate double up on that point. This is what it is. So for black people in this country that come from the ghettos of America, Detroit, wherever you're from, it, it turns into this too. This information sounds very academic. It sounds very exclusive. You can try to include them in this, but it's another system where they're not in control. And black people have not been in control of their lives for 460 years. So here goes another system. What do you mean that they're system. not in control? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean? That they're not in control. What I'm saying this is, is this is not this is not a system that they created. This is not a system that they might not be able to understand. And when you're living in a in, a, in abject poverty and you're dealing with everyday survival, you know what I'm saying. This doesn't sound like something that they need to worry about right now because what this sounds like is, and I'm just I'm just giving you the devil's advocate. This isn't what I believe, or this this is what it could sound like. What it sounds like is it's almost like the talent and tenth in Web Du Bois and the talent and tenth. And That's we know like what's that. best for you. We know what's best though. for you, huh? It's the exact opposite of that. That's hold on, hold right. on, hold it on. Is. I'm giving you the I'm giving you a perspective of someone from the outside. So they're they're looking at you like, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me what's best for me? Well, you, we've done this before, and we see where this got me. So how about yeah, this? Yeah, I'm 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 yeah. gonna be on my own path with my family and the people that in my community that because more than likely you don't come from their community because all black people ain't the same. Just because you're from Oakland and you black don't mean you're the same as somebody from Watts that's black. We're not the same. So, but see, you're 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 making a supposition that this is about telling people, right? And it's not about telling people. It's about a struggle around how to look at the world and what to do about it. And this is a struggle whether it took place in the jungles of Vietnam or in uh, in Guinea Bissau. Algeria or whatever. It was a struggle for people to decide their own future and to try to carry out or, or try to create a path that was civilized. I, I think you guys, are missing, I think you guys right? are missing uh, my point. I think, I, and I understand what you're saying, that this is, this is something that's affecting all these different areas. We're ta I'm talking about people that's never left their block. Oh, oh, wait, no, no, wait, no, wait, no. Wait, see, wait. I, I get your point. I, I, I get you. Right. I, I'm just saying that you're assuming that this is like talking down to people. Right. Or, or but but there's another part of it. Right. Which is that when I'm talking about the environment, I'm not talking about people recycling bottles. I'm not talking about that. The blame for the environment lies in 
whether your family cooks with an open oven or not. I'm talking about the way that the system itself operates, what it forces us to do, the kinds of jobs that it creates, or in fact, the jobs that it destroys, that it is is creating millions of redundant workers that this system doesn't give a damn about and are basically told very nicely, go off and die. So the question is whether we're going to stand up against that. That really is what it comes down to. Do we stand up against a barbaric system that is driven by the desire to accumulate wealth? Or do we fight for a different system that has completely different objectives and as was raised earlier, is driven from the bottom up. That's the choice. I agree with what you're saying, but what I think think Ken is trying to say is not that he disagrees with it, but that how do you communicate that to someone who does think what because I think it's about how it appears to some types of people. And I, and I was wondering, have you have you encountered that type of resistance that Ken is talking about? Where of course. There, there's I, a skepticism. I, yeah. I, yes. Okay. So I, Absolutely. I think that... Uh, 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 how did you deal with it when you... So there's different ways. And, and, and part of it is that you got to be a good listener. You have to um, listen to what people are saying and what they're not saying. Uh, I used to work in a shipyard. I was a welder. Um, and, and that's how I entered into the labor movement. And I dealt with people. I, I went to a school that trained me to be part of the global ruling class. And I left that school, graduated, and went in a very different direction. That is, I got involved in the labor movement. And I met all kinds of people, most of whom had never gone to college, or if they'd gone, they didn't finish. And they had all kinds of views about the world. And one of the things that is very common is that most people don't think that things will change very much. And they think that they're pretty much on their own. So a lot of the, org- the work that I have done over my life is about organizing. It's about building organization. It's about helping to create a framework so that people um, can reject despair and actually find some hope. And, and, you know, look, there were people that, I I dealt with people who were racist. I dealt with people who were misogynists. I dealt with all kinds of people. There's no silver bullet, but it all does begin with listening and trying to understand what are the issues going on for this person? What are they trying to grapple with? What are they trying to figure out? And that's where it gets fascinating. And in terms of what, like, for example, like what that person that Ken is talking about, right, who gets kind of um, put off by this, is what types of angles do you uh, end up having to, like when you're doing the grassroots It depends stuff, on how you know them. Okay. See, that's the thing. It's like, um, because the, the person that you were describing, Ken, I know that person. I know a lot of them. And the question is, how do you know them? In other words, are these your coworkers? Because if so, there's one kind of discussion you can have. Are they people on your block? That's another discussion. Are they someone you just ran into, right? Because how you know them tells you a lot about the discussion. So for example, if there's someone that you work with that literally on, you know, have similar jobs or something like that, 
and they're raising this, then part of the discussion I would raise with them is how do you personally expect that things are going to change if we, meaning those of us that work together, don't come together and build some sort of organization? And that's a lot of what organizing a union is about. You know, when you go into a place where there is no union, many times you'll run across workers who will say, hey, I don't need to hear this stuff. I'll, I'll do fine by myself. And some of those individuals, there's no point in having a discussion because they are not changing. There's others, however, that might even say the same thing, but you point out to them what happens when people actually do come together. And you give examples of when people that are in a similar situation have joined together and fought back. And, you know, it cracks, it creates a few cracks. You've got to follow up with that. The other piece that's really important is reading. And that may sound really strange, but it's like, particularly in what I've seen is that a lot of people don't want to read anymore. It's like reading and and understanding what has happened to people much like themselves. That helps to deepen the discussions. So there's, again, there's no silver bullet to moving someone and converting someone away from despair. But the other part of it is ultimately engaging people in struggle, getting them involved in action, where they they see for themselves what it means to come together. Because you can have the best discussions in the world, but if you don't translate it into actually doing something together, you know, if you're in Flint, Michigan, fighting around the the pollution, uh, the water pollution, right? Or if you're in a place where there's, uh, you know, like if you're in Louisiana with, you know, what's called uh, with Toxic Alley and you're you're not engaged in the whole fight around environmental justice, all this stuff ends up being abstract. When people get engaged in struggle, then these things start to fit together. They start to make sense. People start saying, I got it. I see what you've been saying. And that's when you know you're on the road. Uh, Andre, I think you wanted to say something and I cut you off before. Just going to say that, um, you know, I, I've, I've had that conversation with personal, like friends and family. And it, it, it's kind of weird because it's almost like everyone's like 98% of the way there. And it's like that 2% skepticism. So, for example, like we know where Martin Luther King was when he was assassinated. We know what he was doing. We know that he was on the Poor People's Campaign. We know that he was out to support the sanitation workers' strike. We know he was doing that because he understood the necessity of labor solidarity once the Civil Rights like once uh, the uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, had been passed. That was the next step. It wasn't going to just stop there. There was more left to do. And I think people kind of know that intellectually, but haven't really applied it. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's partially because all of our revolutionaries. Uh, they kill them, they exile them, or they find ways to assimilate them. You know, like I had a yeah. hard, I had a hard time. I was talking to some friends. I was talking to some friends a couple months ago, and we're like, "So, can you name any like revolutionary revolutionaries, like shotgun revolutionaries?" And we were stumped. And it's because like that mode of resistance, that like the idea of radical self defense, uh, the idea of challenging the system, but most of all, the idea that you're not trying to seek a seat at the table. You're not trying to sit with them because there's nothing that they have that you need. You're there to pull everyone away from the table, chop the table up, and use it for the fuel to fuel for uh, for kindling to fuel your revolution. Like that's that's what our predecessors did. But it's almost like that tradition has slowly—I don't want to say like died out because it, it never dies out; it lives on, right? Um, but 
you know, there's been a very effective meme of neutralizing radical leadership. And I think that having conversations with people that can look around them and just see what the conditions are. Like, you know, I'm from I'm from Rexdale, Ontario, right? So it's a, s- a suburb in Toronto, one of the one of the lowest income uh, neighborhoods in the city. You know, right next door is like Malton, which is the lowest income neighborhood in the neighboring city of Mississauga, right? So, <clears throat> like, I I grew up surrounded by people that were just locked in an economic struggle. But when you talk to them about like, you know, the heroes of the past, they'll say Malcolm X and they'll say Martin Luther King, they'll say Marcus Garvey. And these are all people that understood movement politics. So I think um, that here's probably what the tough part is. When you talk to people about socialism, the first thing they're going to do is tell you, go read a book. But you don't have to you don't have to read a book to understand revolutionary politics. And the, the other hard part is you don't have to read a book to understand capitalism. It's just like ingrained in you. It's beaten into you from childhood. You will be sitting, you know, watching Saturday morning cartoons and capitalism is, capitalism is being beamed right into your eyeballs during the commercial breaks or even during the cartoons because they're there to sell toys, right? So like you don't have to um, do any studying or homework to actually get the system that we already have. It's just the background radiation. But I think what's the, the difficult part is helping people understand like, no, we understand socialism by heart we understand like collectivism that is like our african ancestry coming out in us we understand collective action but it's hard to put a name to it and when we hear socialism and we automatically think of like you know uh you know suburban white kids probably went off to uh to ivy league school and coming back to try and give you all these ideas about how you should support their movement it's like no no it has nothing to do with them this is a working people's movement this is a movement of people who are in the struggle yeah, I, I mean, think we've I think we've underestimated the the oh, oh, degree oh. of what's up. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I just jumped in. This is Mario. Oh, yeah. I, there you go. There you go. You got it. I'm I'm sorry about that. This is a very fascinating conversation. I just got home from work and I'm just diving into it right now. Um, I, I think that one of the issues that we have here is people underestimate the degree to which um, the term socialism has been turned into a meme by uh, the political right. And so even for those of us who don't necessarily understand everything that socialism entails, when we hear the word, certain triggers happen in our minds. And even poor Black folks are, 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 are kind of, I don't want to say guilty, but we've, we've taken to that as well. So when we hear socialism, we automatically associate that with, okay, they're going to take my stuff. Everybody has to have the same thing. There's all these negative connotations that happen when you hear that word that I think that people who want to promote it um, sort of underestimate the work that has to be done to kind of get over that hump. Do, 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 do you guys understand what I'm saying with that? Does that kind of uh, make totally, it? totally. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I totally understand. I, I, I will add one thing to that, too. I think also like um, hip hop has become like so neoliberal in its messaging and stuff. And, you know, a lot of us grow up with these messages of, I've got to grind, Jay-Z, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Right. Like, like the American dream is really kind of sold to the average deeply uh, ingrained, d- yeah. dude in the street, that hustle mindset that, you know, you're in a bar. Like, like, it's amazing that Black people have this stereotype of being lazy because if you just sit in a barbershop for like a couple of hours, you will see people coming in trying to hustle and sell and grind anything they can in that, you know, couple of hours that you're there. Like, we are really almost enamored with that hustle uh, mindset. And that's kind of the person I'm wondering, how do you get through to them? Because I'm sold on what socialism can do for them and the need for it. But um, Mario, am I, on, am I on track with what you're saying or? Sure, I think that's, that's a piece of it. But I just, 
communism is so deeply ingrained in the fabric of our society, man, that a lot yeah. of us, we just don't, we can't see anything else, right? It's kind of a, Stock- it's kind that, of a Stockholm syndrome. Right, exactly. You, you, mean, you take that and then you take, go ahead, what were you saying, Andre? No, say did you, you said communism. Did you mean capitalism? Capitalism, I'm sorry. Don't yeah. say com- I'm sorry, capitalism. Um, so you oh, take it's that working. You, it's working already. It, right. <laughs> you take that. Right, exactly. <laughs> you take that. And then you have the fact that you just have these negative associations that automatically pop up, even amongst, the, I'm telling you, even amongst people who don't totally understand what the socialist movement is and what it entails. When you hear that word, it's been so deeply associated with negative things that it just automatically triggers negative thoughts in people when we even hear the word, you know. And I but think I got- that uh, we're going to have to figure out how to to overcome that aspect of it. I think um, it's it's still somewhat underestimated by the advocates of socialism, how, how deeply ingrained that is. I guess one way to look but at it is about- like... One way to look at it, I just want to say this real quick, is do you think that the people who manage the system that exploit you would then give you the cheat code to beating them? No, like, not at all. Okay. And I, okay, I'm somebody who supports reparations. And I don't mean like mm-hmm. reparations in principle or some sort of like, you know, postmodern kind of idea about decolonizing your mind. I'm talking about like actual calculate how much this, how much it's going to be and cut the check. Like that's the kind of reparations I support mm-hmm. first and foremost. Once that's done, what guarantee does anybody have that that's going to change the way the system works? I mean, look at the richest black people in America. You know, do they do they have power? What kind of power do they have? Look at the amount of wealth that Jay-Z has. What is he? He's a he's a footman for the NFL. He's a patsy. He's a, he's he's a stool pigeon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You think of uh, how much money Colin Kaepernick has. And he tried to buck the system and they, they locked him out. He, pr- he will probably never play football again. So it's yeah. either you, you, one of two things happens. You accumulate wealth and you challenge the system and the system locks you out. Or you accumulate wealth, you accommodate to the system, and the system uses you, right? So I, I, when I hear people saying that, you know, uh, being able to um, to get material wealth inside of our community, that's how we're going to get it free. It's an avenue for us to develop economic power. And I'm not saying that that's invalid, but I'm saying that's not going to be sufficient because the system has other means of shutting us out. But so so what what else can we rely on? It's actual strength of numbers. So 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 then so, what, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Go yeah, right ahead. So, so I think that what we have to keep in mind always is that every form of movement for liberation is always demonized by the oppressor. And, um, and there is a particular form of demonization of socialism and communism that we've had to deal with. But when you look at uh, the Black Freedom Movement, and you look at what it was up against post-slavery and what was considered acceptable, or if you look at the women's movement or any number of other movements, you look, you, you recognize that the, the oppressor always demonizes, always twists the objectives of the oppressed around. And one of the other things that it does is where it, where it can is that it seizes hold of our leaders after they're dead and then transforms them into useful characters. So we're, this, is what, this is the nature of the beast that we're up against. And it doesn't make it easy. I'm not trying to say that it's easy. But the other thing that I would say is that we're, 
we are dealing with the ramifications of Reagan, believe it or not, and Reaganism within the black community. Because one of the things that happened during the 80s was the promotion, the active promotion of rabid individualism and anti-collectivism, going for yourself, doing on your own. And even with some of the radical performers that spoke out against oppression, what was fascinating about them is that they often bought into that whole line of thinking. And, And so we're engaged in a struggle where we're trying to say to people, no, it's not just about what you do on your own, that we are not going to be able to save ourselves if we, in fact, don't come together. It's not going to be what Jay-Z can do, Kaepernick, or whoever else. And actually, Kaepernick is an interesting question on, on a different matter, but I would just, just want to throw this in, that you know the brother had a lot of courage, still does. But one thing that I would, uh, I'm concerned about with him which is, relates to this discussion, is that it shouldn't just have been his stand by himself, that the basis existed for a movement. There were millions of people out there that wanted to support him, and no movement was built. He didn't want that. He didn't want to speak in front of the media. He didn't go to the NFLPA, right? And I think that we have to understand when you're in that moment, that's when it's really important to mobilize, to galvanize people so that they can go forward and actually we can win some victories. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think, think he, uh, he was terrified of the of taking that mantle of leadership because if you look at the history of what happens to leaders of black movements in this country, it, it, it's not a very pretty picture. And true. so <laughs> I think, you know, he I think to a large degree, he didn't even realize how large this thing was going to become. And I think once the spotlight grew on him, he kind of uh, got a little nervous and, and fumbled the ball in some ways. Yeah, I think we're so used to this individualism now that a lot of us just watching are natural um, apologists for it. So I think also there was no real pressure or expectation from people in the public who supported Kaepernick to look at his fellow players and like, are you going to let him uh, take this fall alone? Like, People I notice now have a natural apologism for, um, you know, not putting yourself on the line. Like, you know, they just say, well, like, like I'll give an example. You guys remember, I don't know if you saw this, but there was some black guy who filmed a bunch of people in this factory, uh, a bunch of Mexican people in the factory walking off the job because um, one of their Mexican co-workers got hurt in the warehouse I remember or something. That. Yeah. Yeah. You, you remember that, right? Yeah. And this black guy was filming and goes, oh, look, all these people are walking out. And he was kind of cheering them on, right? And then that guy got retaliated against yeah. and they fired him. But then uh, those Mexican co-workers didn't come back and fight for him. But then a lot of people were like, well, you know, they all got to worry about their jobs. They got to do stuff. And then like my first thing was, wait, he got fired supporting them. Right. That's reciprocity. Like that's what solidarity is. You take a risk. You put yourself on the line. But it's become so normalized for, you know, Oh, of course, this person got to watch out for themselves. Like, there's no like, like there used to be this thing. Not saying this is a totally good thing because it kind of supports things like toxic masculinity and those type of things. But there used to be this thing in Europe. I forget what the country. I think maybe it was uh, Russia or something. There used to be this thing like the flower of um, cowardice or something. Like, where if you were like a young guy who wasn't 
uh, fighting on the front or something. Like old ladies, young ladies, kids, they would give you like a flower. And it was a flower of cowardice to let you know you were a coward. If you were just a, a young man of fighting age and able-bodied, just walking around. So it was a way of on the front. turning him into a social pariah for his act of cowardice. He, yeah, so they would just walk up to you and give you flowers and and the mark of Cain, so to speak. Kind of, yeah, exactly. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Mm-hmm.